Good morning, Village Church East. Welcome to Village Church Online. Yes, we are online again. We had a great time last week for those of you that weren't able to join us. We had our first outside service of the summer. It was a blast. The weather was perfect. The worship was incredible. The message was, was you can fill in the blank, but I sure enjoyed delivering the message. And we even got to celebrate somebody's very special birthday. And thank you to all of you who, uh, who secretly did all of the work to make that a very special day for me. Uh, it, was, it was a great time just fellowshipping together. We're looking forward to more of that actually, uh, and you'll get more information on that. Uh, you've already heard something in the announcements. Uh, so plan ahead because we'll be planning more opportunities to get together over the summer. And that is something to look forward to. But for now, I wanna wish all of you dads out there, happy Father's Day. Uh, this is Father's Day. Uh, fathers are a gift to families. Uh, it's amazing to me uh, how many times I do a good job of being a dad and, and it's amazing to me how many times I do a bad job being a dad. Once in a while, I'll, I'll hit one out of the park and sometimes not so good. And you can ask my kids as to how I'm doing, they'd be glad to fill you in. But fathers have this unique ability to to inject a culture into their families. And I'm constantly amazed at how I'm doing that in my own family's life, like in calling them even to come to online church on Sunday morning. It's kind of this, this, this moment that I have in life to direct a bunch of people that are constantly watching me as to how I would like to see them grow up and where I would like to put God uh, in our daily lives so that hopefully they'll adopt that themselves someday. The culture that dad sets is sometimes good and sometimes bad. Maybe you've, your experience is that you've seen bad examples as a dad. Uh, your dad maybe gave you lots of things to say, I'll never do that when I become a father. Or maybe you just didn't have a father growing up. Maybe there was an absent dad in your life. And these are all reminders to us that we still live in a fallen world. But once in a while, once in a while, you'll see a dad that is trying to do things according to God's will. And when they do that, they, they inject this culture that, uh, that sometimes you end up exhibiting a little more in your life than you had planned to. For me, for instance, my dad always considered bonding time, working time. So we were out in the yard working on something or working on a project or building something together. Uh, we built a shed in our backyard together. We, we poured concrete together. This was, this was his attempt to kind of bond with us as kids. And so I look back on that and what we went fishing, we did all of the, you know, vacations, we did all of those things as well. But, but the, the regular touches that he would have to invest in my life was usually centered around working on a project together. And so, you know what I end up doing with my own kids? Yeah, you can guess. I love it when they join me in doing projects together. And it's interesting how my dad, kind of the culture that he set is kind of the culture that I'm building in my own life. I have a tendency to do the same thing to my own kids. Fathers have this unique ability to, to drive a culture, even when they don't realize they're doing it. Sometimes good, sometimes bad. But it is this beautiful gift that God has given dads to be able to do this in their families. Now, Exodus 12 is where we're at today, and while this message is not necessarily on fathers per se, it is a, it is a challenge to each one of us, whether we're dads or, or not, each one of us to create a culture in our families, to, to create a godly culture in our families. 
And today, this passage can be a great encouragement, not just to you dads, but it can be a great encouragement to all of you who are looking to build a culture of godliness, a culture of devotion, a culture of love for Jesus Christ in your homes. And it's centered around this last plague, plague number 10. This plague drove them, each one of these Israelites, each one of these God-fearing people, to create, to begin to create a culture in their own families of devotion and obedience to God, a culture of faith in God, a culture of practicing faith together in their families. They put blood on the doorposts of their houses and on the lintels of, of the doorposts. This would make the first holiday in the Jewish new calendar, and it would involve the whole family. After they killed the lamb and they put the blood on the doorpost, they had a family meal, and sometimes with other families. They were beginning a brand new culture, and it was centered around Passover. The head of the household would set the stage by picking the lamb, killing the lamb, and then joining his family together with other families to create a culture of obedient devotion and faith in Yahweh God. Jump in, if you will, at verse 29, Exodus chapter 12. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. Now, firstborns change your life. And if you're a dad, you know this. I remember when Beth told me that we were pregnant with Abigail, our firstborn. You can't be a dad without having a firstborn. And I remember the emotions that went through my head, uh, you know, nervous, scared, uh, anxious, joyful, excited. It was like a, a mishmash of emotions all at the same time. The firstborn would be the, the person that initiates your start as a, as a parent. In the ancient Near East, the firstborn was looked at in very high regard. They were given more responsibility than the other kids in the family. And if you're a firstborn, maybe you can identify with that. They were given the responsibility of, of carrying on the family name. If the parents passed, they were given the responsibility of speaking for the family. They were responsible for initiating the family's uh, uh, property uh, ownership and divisions when, it, when, when other family members moved out. The responsibility of the firstborn in the ancient Near East was one that, that you, the firstborn was invested in big time. They had to know what it meant to be, in our case, what it meant to be a Jarvis, what it meant to be this head of the household. And they, they were looked at by even their neighbors and their, their, their clan, their, the, the tribe that they lived in. They were looked at as representations of their family. Sometimes they would even speak on behalf of their family. This firstborn was the most invested in. And so when this final plague happened, God was taking away something very valuable, not just the life of a child, but the life of the child that had been invested in the most. Look in verse 30. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. I read that and it breaks my heart. A great cry. I mean, you've heard a great cry on a hospital floor or you've heard a great cry in your family, in your home. But have you heard a great cry in your neighborhood? In church, have, what would it be like to have a great cry in the nation? 
these were people that lived all over Egypt that were losing their firstborns and there was not a house left unaffected. We did this in our community group. I said, all right, how many of you are firstborns? And I had them raise their hands. And then I said, well, how many of you have parents that are firstborns? And I had them raise their hands. And we didn't even get to grandparents, but I would have asked, how many of you have grandparents that are firstborn? And those would have raised their hands. And what happens when you do that, church, is you realize there is not a family unaffected by this plague. You will lose someone you love. Pharaoh rose up early in the night. I don't know what got him out of bed, but I asked myself, was it a noisy death? Was the death of his firstborn noisy enough, painful enough where it woke him? Or was there a sense of sleeplessness this night all over Egypt? Because of the last nine plagues that were prophesied and happened, was everybody in bed sleeping with one eye open? Do you think that those weren't who weren't quite believing in God would sit up and wait in the night? Fear enough just to check. We put our kids to bed and if they're running a fever, I don't know about you, but I get up constantly through the night just to check on them, just to make sure they're okay. And this night, you know the prophecy is the firstborn would die and you, you, you don't believe it enough to put the blood on the door. But I wonder if you believe it just enough to keep checking on them. There's no clocks. There's no alarms. You would have a sleepless night of constantly walking back and forth to your child's room just to check on them. Not belief enough to just do something about it. Just belief enough to check. And then the wailing started. This would raise through the nation and the neighborhoods and Maybe this is what woke people up. Maybe they woke up to the anguished cries of their neighbors, realizing that they've lost their firstborn. I wonder how the people in the house without the blood would rise up out of their beds and run to check on their children. I wonder the emotions they would feel. I wonder the emotions that those would feel that had the blood on the door, as I'm sure they ran to their children's rooms as well. And then finding that their children those who had faith enough to put the blood on the doors. I wonder if they looked at their children realizing that amongst all the crying in Egypt, their child was safe. They had to hug their kids, don't you think? Kiss them. And I wonder how they felt about Yahweh. Notice the difference. Peace for those who believe God because their faith is confirmed, but panic for those who did not do as God wanted them to do. Listen, church, our world is constantly in panic and in sleepless nights. Why? Because they don't obey what God wants them to do. They pretend all is well. They put their heads on their pillows at night and convince themselves that there's not a day of reckoning coming. But deep down inside, I wonder how many go through sleepless nights because they wonder in the back of their mind, what would happen if I died tonight? Verse 31. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me also. I want you to see the urgency of Pharaoh. Pharaoh summons Aaron and Moses at what time during the 24-hour period, church? Yeah, he summons them at night. 
right after he discovers the death of the firstborn with the wailing of his people ringing in his ears. He says, go get Moses and Aaron. Why? Because he wanted them out. In In fact, there's five imperatives in this verse. You can see them. It says, rise up, go out, go, serve. Pharaoh is desperate to get them out. If you were saying it today, you'd say, go, go, just go. Pharaoh wanted them gone. Why? Because he had had enough of all this pain. He had had enough of losing his power. He had enough of losing, of seeming impotent in front of his people. I find this interesting because God gave this promise to Moses as an unbelievable promise. Before Moses went to Pharaoh, God said, go to Pharaoh with the, with the, with the statement I want you to say. What's the statement, church? Let my people go. And we went to Pharaoh. And you know what Pharaoh did the first time Moses said that? He said, not only am I not going to let them go, I'm going to make their lives more difficult. You think they've had it hard so far. Now they're going to not only make bricks day and night, but they're going to have to get their own materials to make the bricks day and night. It's in Exodus 6.1. The Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand, he will send them out. With a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God said to, to Moses, listen, Pharaoh is going to drive them out. He's going to be intentional. He's going to be angry if they don't leave. And Moses had to hear that. And after delivering the message to Pharaoh and Pharaoh getting giving the, the Israelites more work to do, Moses had to say, this is unbelievable. There's no way this promise is ever going to happen. I have to be insane to believe that Pharaoh would even let my people go, much less drive them out. And lo and behold, Israel now is receiving the promise of God. Pharaoh is not giving them any option to stay. He said, get out of my country or I'll kill you. He's urgent for them to go. And then he says, bless me also. In fact, church, I want you to know in this sentence, this paragraph that we just read, five imperatives, go, get up, go serve, get out of here, five imperatives. This, however, bless me also is not in the imperative. This is a request from a humbled Pharaoh. Moses, please bless me also. In in other words, what he's saying to Moses is, please make it stop. Verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we will all die. We shall all be dead. Not only is Pharaoh urgent, but now the Egyptians are urgent. With Pharaoh humbled and, and frightened himself, The people follow suit. In fact, the word urgent there that you read in your Bibles, you know what word that is? That's the same word used to describe Pharaoh's hard heart. In other words, church, the hardness of Pharaoh to keep the Israelites and to go against Yahweh's wishes was the same word used to describe the Egyptians' desire for them to get out. They were hard in their heart to get them out gone. They were so urgent for these Israelites to leave them alone. They were as urgent in their hearts for their slaves to go as Pharaoh was to keep them. The first six plagues were about irritating things, frogs and maggots and, and flies and blood that, water that turned to blood. But the last four 
created death and devastation, and they couldn't take it any longer. Verse 34, so the people took up their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up on their cloaks and in their shoulders. In other words, the urgency of Israel we can see here. They, they were leaving. They just took whatever they had and they left. They packed up the food that they have. This is why Passover is always done with unleavened bread. They would let the dough rise overnight, beat it back down and let it rise again so that they could eat normal bread. But because they had to leave in a hurry, the bread was not able to rise. To this day, they celebrate Passover with unleavened bread for that very reason. It's for the children when they eat this bread and they say, why does this bread taste kind of weird? And they would say, let me tell you about how God rescued us from Egypt and how we had to leave in an urgent manner. 35, the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and jewelry and clothing. And the Lord gave had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have whatever they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. <laughs> this is amazing. This is the urgency of Israel. Grab what you can, get all the provisions you can and get out. Now listen, slaves don't have anything. Slaves don't have possessions. Slaves just hope to survive the day. Now these slaves had pockets full of silver and gold. This speaks about the great part of God's heart that takes care of us because he knew they, they would need these provisions to get them through the next 40 years. They would need it for bartering and for trading and for just living. And so he gave them the gold and the silver of the Egyptians. This was promised at the burning bush. You remember this? Moses is at the burning bush with God arguing eight times. He's got the wrong guy. God, you are speaking to the wrong guy. I, I don't think so good. I'm not good with people. Uh, I got a bad past. I don't talk so good. You know, he, he's trying to convince God that he's the wrong guy for the job. And God finally says to him, no, Moses, we've had this conversation long enough. You're the guy. I need you to go and get it done. Moses had to think, there's no way this is going to happen. And one of the promises God gives Moses at the burning bush was not only are you going to exit Egypt, but you are going to plunder the riches of the Egyptians. You're going to take all their gold and silver with you when they leave. And Moses had to think to himself, there is no way. How is that supposed to happen? It's in Exodus 3 verse 21. God says, I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians amazing and when you go when you do get the people out Moses this is before any of this ever happened when you go you shall not go empty but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in the house for silver gold jewelry and clothing you shall put them on your sons and daughters and you will plunder the Egyptians amazing God not only rescued them he provided for them for the time in front of them this is how much God is in control. This is how much God is devoted to his people. This is how much he thinks ahead. And this is how much we can believe God. Because our circumstances, when we're standing in front of a burning bush looking at insurmountable odds, might be to, our inclination would be to argue with God and tell him, eh, not now, I've had too much, I can't handle it, I'm not that kind of a guy, my faith isn't strong enough. Eight times he argued, Moses argued with God. Until God said, not only are you going to take all the people out, you're going to be laden with riches that the Egyptians will voluntarily give you when you go. 
And the people of Israel, verse 37, journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Some would estimate between one and two million people, once you count the men and the women and the children. This was a mixed multitude, verse 38, also went up with them and very much livestock and herds. A mixed multitude also, you know what that's saying? They had more than just Israelites in this group. Israel was made up of not just Israelites. Israel, like, Israel was made up, this people of God, this brand new nation of God, was made up of anybody that would obey the Lord. Caleb and Joshua. Caleb was not a slave. Caleb was adopted into the Israelite family, and he exists in the annals of, of, of Israel for all time because of his faith in Yahweh. Rahab, adopted in. Once they crossed over the Jericho and they came to the Jericho River, they, they come to the, the Jordan River and they come to the first city, Jericho. Rahab says, I've heard of you and I want to be a part of you. There were groups all through their years of wandering that were trying to make their way into Israel because they knew they had heard about how God fights for Israel. This was a diverse nation and Israel was supposed to accept all people. All people, it doesn't matter, doesn't matter their, their background, their nationality, anyone who wants to come and be a part of them could be. And do you know why that's the case? Because God said, you know what it's like to live in a land and you feel like a stranger. No one is going to be like that in Israel. Leviticus puts it a great way, 1934. This is a law given to Israel. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with your, you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Showing them love did not make them automatically the people of God. But showing them love made sure that they were included with their families. As though they were treated as a native Israelite themselves. But if you wanted to become a part of God's family officially, there was one more step to take. And it's verse 48. If the stranger shall sojourn with you, these are, these are even the ones that exited Egypt with the Israelites. God is beginning now to give them a way to treat those people so that they would understand how to make them part of Israel. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, that he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the lands, familiar language, right? This is not about how you treat a stranger. You treated strangers and sojourners and all of them with love, with acceptance, because you know what it's like to not fit in. When you were in Egypt, you know what that's like. Don't treat people like that. But if they want to worship the God that you worship, if they want to be a part of you, uh, 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 of your real family, what makes you a part of God's people, they need to believe God. They need to obey God, just like they did when they put the blood on the doors. They must be circumcised in order to be viewed as a part of her, as the family. In other words, those willing to live out their faith in Yahweh would officially belong to the family of God. More on that in verse 48, no uncircumcised person shall lead it. There shall be a law, there shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. In other words, anyone wishing to join them can, but they must come to God on his terms. Church, this is a message for our culture today. Anyone who comes to the church is welcome. Anyone will receive love. Anyone will be accepted. But if you want to worship, if you want to become a part of God's family, 
if you want to officially belong, you've got to come to terms with the fact that God tells us how to worship him. Even sojourners or guests in the household of Israel would have to follow these rules. Even if you were staying overnight, but you were there at Passover, you had one of two choices. One, you could not observe the Passover and still have a wonderful experience as a stranger, as a sojourner in Israel. Or two, you could observe the Passover, but if you're going to observe the Passover, you've got to be all in. That means circumcision. That means all in. Those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. And we must worship God as he wants, not as the gods from our past. And this is what God establishes. Anyone can join with Israel, but you cannot bring the worship of your past in and expect God to accept that. God accepts worship as he de demands it. They cannot integrate their old ways into God's new way. And there's no exceptions. Why? Because sin enslaved you. God has freed you. And he wants everyone to go all in. Verse 50. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. I love that. The Lord brought the people of Egypt out. You know what? That's not just the Israelites. That's anyone who had blood on the doors. It demonstrated all of those who walked now by faith in Yahweh, who believed Yahweh enough to apply the blood. These were people who left Egypt with all their firstborn children by their sides. And the hand that you hold as you look down in your child's eyes or the, the eyes that you look at at your parents who were firstborn or your grandparents who are walking alongside with you. Can you imagine the heart you must have toward God knowing that he has preserved you, your children, your extended family because of your faith in God? Can you imagine how grateful you would be to have your family still intact? But God's not done yet. He pushes the envelope one part further. Verse 1 of the next chapter, 13, the Lord said to Moses, Now consecrate to me all the firstborn, whether it's whatever's first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, it is mine. In other words, God says, Whatever you are grateful to have, I need it to be devoted to me. Consecrate it to me. Consecrate is the word kadosh. This is the word holy. Holy means set apart. In other words, God says, the valuable things that you have, the firstborn things, those biggest assets that you have, the biggest investment of your family, I want it. Set that apart for me. Do you know why? Because if you can give God your best, everything else will follow. God is asking for their best. Consecration is giving God our best for his use in his way. One more time. Consecration is giving God our best for his use in his way. Choosing to give God our first is a great way to keep our heart in check. Imagine what we would do, what kind of people we would be if our first question would be about anything, what does God want me to do with blank? My income. Not what will I do to make me happy or how much can I make to make me happy, but what does God want out of my income? How about family? Not how do I raise my kids according to culture, but what does God want me to do 
and raise. How does he want me to raise my kids? Vocation, not taking a job that gets me furthest, but what job can I do that furthers God's kingdom, God's plan, God's purposes for my life? Relationships, not how can this relationship fulfill me, but rather how can this relationship give God glory? Time, you can stick anything in this and ask yourself the same question, time, not what I can, what can I afford to sacrifice, but how can I use my gifts and my talents to help God build his kingdom? You see, if that's our first question when it comes to time or relationships or income or family, if our first question is, what does God want? You see, everything else just falls into place. Give him your best. Everything else follows. Consecration is a choice to live for God. When you're in slavery, you're just in survival mode. But when you're given freedom in Christ, now you have a choice. And the choice that God wants you to make is set these things apart so that I can use them to bless others, to build my kingdom, and my glory can be seen in your life. Freedom gives the person a choice to use everything that they have for a greater purpose. I have two so what's for you. Number one, church free people understand the urgency of their situation. There's an urgency when God rescues us. And if God has rescued you, you understand that language. The urgency of Pharaoh, we've seen it. Get out and take your stuff with you. There's the urgency of the Egyptians. Get out and take our stuff with you. And now God says there needs to be an urgency in Israel. Live it out and set all your stuff aside for your faith to live it out in faith. There's a story in Luke seven of an event that happened in Jesus' life when a Pharisee invited him over to dinner. The Pharisee's name was Simon. Jesus was sometimes invited to these houses and usually it was to set him up, to get him to fall, <laughs> to, to get him to say something that they could do. Oh, gotcha moment, we're used to that. Well, these Pharisees were constantly doing that. We're not told exactly why Simon invited Jesus over. Maybe it was to pick his brain. I don't know. But ultimately, he brought him over. He set him at the table and he started serving him food. And Simon did not treat Jesus as an honored guest. You see, for honored guests, you wash their feet. You anoint their head with oil. You, you greet them with a kiss. It's like when we greet one another with a hug at church. Wasn't that fun last week? Oops. Uh, 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 an air hug. <laughs> We, sometimes we socially distance. When you do that, you, you, you greet one another with an honored, an honored gesture. It's like if you had people over to your house and you brought out the best silverware in the best place, right? You got, a you got a group of people that you would do that with and a group of people you may not do that with. Well, Simon had Jesus over and just treated him like a, like a guy, not as an honored guest. And then something happened at the dinner. A woman found her way in. She was a woman of the street. In fact, she was known in the community as a sinner. That's how they called her. They said, look, there's the sinner because of her lifestyle. And everybody knew it. She found her way into the dinner. 
She stood behind Jesus and she had the gall to stand there and just cry. Here's how the story goes. Verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him and he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table and behold, a woman of this city, look at this, who was a sinner. When she learned that, the, that he was reclining at the table in Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. She waited for a lull in the conversation and then she took the jar she brought with her. Alabaster is an amazing, beautiful stone. This this jar that she had had to be very expensive. This These stones, alabaster stones, were used to decorate Solomon's temple. They were beautiful and expensive. And this woman did not have money. She, she bent over at Jesus' feet with this expensive jar. She broke it. She took the perfume out of it. It was expensive perfume, probably Nothing she would buy. This was probably donated down, passed on from family member to family member, something very special. She took that perfume. She poured it over Jesus' feet. And with the tears that she had been crying, dripping on Jesus' feet, she washed his feet with her hair. Nobody gave her a towel. Her hair was all she had. Either way, she's pouring all of herself over Jesus Christ. 38, standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed with them with the ointment. And the Pharisee was indignant. What goal did this woman have to barge in here in the middle of this very special dinner, which he didn't treat very special? What goal did she have to appear and to down the 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 the, the importance of what was going on here. And Jesus sees all of this and he says, Simon, I want to give you a little story. He tells Simon about a parable about a rich person who loaned two people money. One he gave 50 bucks, one he gave $500. The person who gave the loan to the two men had a good day and said, you know what? Loans are forgiven. You don't need to pay them back. Jesus said to Simon, which one of these people do you think would love the guy that gave them the loan more? And Simon said, well, I suppose the one who gave him the more money. Verse 43, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. You see, Simon knew the right answers. He didn't have the right application. Jesus, the hope of the world, sitting in front of him, he treated as some schmo off the street. This woman treated Jesus as if her life depended on him and she owed him everything. So Jesus gave the meaning of the parable himself in verse 44, because Simon wasn't making the connection. Turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, you see this woman, I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. And you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Simon, you didn't treat me as though you needed anything from me, as though you, as, as though you appreciated me at all. But this woman has not ceased to do that ever since she walked into the house. She sees her situation as urgent. She knew she was in need of rescue. She was known as a sinner and she knew it. And she was begging Jesus to acknowledge her existence and to maybe save her. 
She recognizes the one who rescues and she shows it in her actions of love. And the application had to appall Simon because Jesus gave it to him. Therefore, I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. You see, here's the point. She knew the urgency of her situation. Simon did not. He knew he was missing a little something and he was listen, willing to listen to the rabbi. She knew she had nothing without Jesus. And she knew who Jesus was because her situation demanded her to be urgent. Number two, freed people realize they owe their rescuer everything. This passage is not about the death of the firstborn necessarily. True, that is a, a, a mark on history that has ramifications even to our day. But the greater point is this plague is about what we owe to God. The Israelites knew what they'd been rescued from. They had proof of God's devotion to them. They were emancipated from slavery after 430 years. They had salvation of their families and they held the hand of their firstborn walking with them out of Egypt. They had pockets full of riches that were given to them. The hearts of those walking to the promised land with their firstborn walking by their side has to be full of thankfulness. Parents thankful to God, children thankful for their parents applying blood on the door, and everyone thankful for the lamb. Their attitude is Egypt enslaved us. God freed us. We owe all to him. Church, read that and let it sink in. Egypt enslaved us. God freed us. We owe all to him. So church, what do you think God has saved you from? Because until you realize how much he has saved you from, you will not love to the depths God wants you to love. If you know you've been freed from lots, your life will show it. If you know you've been freed from an immense amount of sins and from an eternity apart from God, your life will show it. But if you think you've been saved from a little, your life will show that too. Life lived, consecrated to God, is a life lived out of gratitude for what God has done. This passage in Peter, as obedient children, chapter one, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you to be is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. You see, if we know how much we've been saved from, we are gonna live lives that are different, consecrated, set apart for God. And it's not out of a heart of debt. It's out of a heart of gratitude. Can you see the difference? It's not because I'm doing this to get something from God. It's I'm doing this because God has given me everything and it's the least I can give him. You remember we started this whole conversation by saying each home creates a unique culture for the kids to grow up in. What kind of culture do you think these people saved from Egypt walking with the hand of their firstborn by their side. What kind of a culture do you think they would create in their homes? Don't you think it would be a culture of obedience, of faith, of consecration? Why? Because their faith was giving them hope to live by. What is the culture you are creating in your home? You don't have to be the father of a home. You could just be the participant, but you are adding to the culture of that home every day. How much church have you been rescued from? How good has God been to you?
how good has God been to you? If your answer is, I can't even name the ways, then church, live the life. Consecrate all you have to God. Begin with the things that are most important because everything after that is cake. Consecrate your life to Jesus Christ. Live for him and wait and see how your life will change. Sin enslaves us, church. God frees us. Go all in. What is holding you back? Let's pray. Father, I am grateful for this message out of the 10th plague, the rescue from the rescuer. Thank you for rescuing these slaves and, and in doing so, giving them a new life, new nation, with a new calendar, uh, with, with new memorials and holidays to celebrate, new laws. There are new people now. They are walking away with, with the riches of Egypt in their pockets and the blessings of an intact family. You have been good to those who follow you. And Lord, nothing has changed today. You are good to us. We recognize you have been better to us than we ever give you credit for. Our prayers are so much too much about stuff we want and so much too little about thankful things that thankful words that we give to you because we don't even know how good you've been to us. And so Father, let me start with our church as being their voice for them as we're separated in houses right now. Let me with them on behalf of them. Let me Father for us all say, thank you. You have been good to us. Let us live lives that are not indebted to you, but let us live lives that are consecrated to you because we understand how much we have to be thankful for. And may you change the world through these hearts of love and gratitude that your church constantly portrays, no matter what comes. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.